In the book of Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to just tell you at the, at the um, start that you know, we may run just a few minutes long tonight, but I promise I won't waste your time. Whenever we approach the Word of God, there are three things that we need from God in order to make it effective in us. The first is that we need God's Holy Spirit to help us to understand exactly what it is that we're reading, what it is that He's saying. Second of all, we need the Holy Spirit to help us to apply it to our lives. If we simply understand it, but yet we can't apply it and see how it fits you know, into the scope of our lives, then it doesn't do us any good. But then the third thing that we need from God is that we need His Holy Spirit to give us the ability to act upon it. To hear what He has to say, to clearly see how it applies to our lives, and then to let Him do it within us so that we're affected and changed. And so let's do that. Let's just ask God to do those things for us tonight as we approach His Holy Word. Father, we know, Lord, that heaven and earth will pass away, but that Your Word will never pass. And we know, Lord, tonight that no one knows the things of the Lord except for the Spirit of God. But we know Your Spirit's been given to us. And so we pray, Lord, that You would help us to understand, help us to apply, and help us to live the things that You speak to us tonight. I pray that Your Holy Spirit would go so much further than what my words can accomplish in teaching us Your Word and leading us into all truth. We just look forward to hearing what You have for us tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's a couple of lights that are off in the back corner over here. People might have trouble seeing their Bibles. I don't know if the light switch can be... Nice. Let there be... The Apostle Paul began a letter to the church at Ephesus wherein he sought to explain to them the wealth that they possess as those that are in Jesus Christ. And so for three chapters, he just gives verse after verse of wealth, just things that God has done, the grace that they've received, the position that they hold before Him, the forgiveness, the redemption, and just layer after layer of blessing and and abundance that God has bestowed upon those who put their faith and trust in Him. But that discussion on wealth took the natural turn that it should when we reach chapter 4 and the Apostle Paul began to, to, to explain to us how that wealth affects our lifestyle. How is it that we're to live now that we've been graced with this abundance? How does it affect us? And he told us that we're to walk in unity, that we're to walk in holiness. He told us that we're to walk, uh, you know, as those that, that are um, spiritually noble, not as peasants, you know. And tonight he's going to talk to us about walking in love, walking in light, and walking in wisdom as we are in chapter 5. So in chapter 5, verse 1, we read, the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. 
Essentially, what Paul is saying to them here at the onset of this chapter is he is saying, let the Lord be the authority and the standard by which you measure moral behavior. Let the Lord be the authority and the standard by which you measure moral behavior. Now, any form of morality or lifestyle apart from the authority of Jesus Christ and the Word of God, the Bible, will be baseless, will be relative, and ultimately it will fail. There's nothing wrong with morals, but if you separate morals from Christ or from the Word of God, then those morals have nothing to stand upon and they will ultimately fail. Satan has no problem with morality. He's not intimidated by it. He has no opposition to it. Morality, apart from Christ, is religion. But when you attach morality to the authority of the one who set those morals, the standards that are placed there in the Word of God, well, then you have a base and a foundation whereupon to lay those morals, and therefore they mean something. There's weight behind them. And if an appeal for moral behavior is given apart from the authority of Jesus Christ, it will fail. Whether it's in the form of conviction that's given as a preacher, you know, speaks and pleads with people to change their behavior. Whether it's through the strength of a parent as they seek to raise their children and teach them what's right. Or whether it's just the appeal of a mentor. If morality is taught apart from the authority of Christ, then eventually the desires of the flesh will become stronger than the conviction of the preacher or the appeal of the mentor or the strength of the parent. And those morals will ultimately crack and fail. If you remove Christ, morality breaks down. And thus we look around and we see the school system. And they removed the authority of Christ, the authority of His Word, the authority of the Bible and the Father from the school systems. And now, though they desire to instill morals in the children, they have no foundation whereupon to build them. And thus we see the mess that the school systems have become. You look at the court system, the legal system, and they have removed the authority of Christ and they're seeking to implement standards of morality with no foundation or base. And therefore those Those morals have nothing to stand upon and the jails are overcrowded with people. And they have no authority. They have no power in the things that they're seeking to produce in the lives of people. The parental system has been reduced to a parent pleading with their child saying, you cannot do this because I said so. And the foundation for morality in the home has been reduced to the plea of a desperate parent who wants some quiet or some peace or some control over the lives of their children. And that will work so long as that parent is able to overpower that child or has influence in that child's life. But a day will come when that child will be able to overpower the parent. When the child will no longer care what the parent thinks. And then that morality that was instilled apart from Jesus Christ in the Bible will ultimately fail. It will break down. And even in the church, if it's a parent or a policeman, if it's a teacher or a pastor, if you can't look at the people you're talking to and say to them that there is a God who made you, there's a God who made life and everything in it, He purchased salvation. He became flesh and dwelt among us. 
He's returning and all of us are going to stand before him and give an account for the way that we lived our lives. And unless we can appeal to the authority of God the creator, the author of the eternal word, and appeal to the conviction that he says he will bring by the power of his Holy Spirit as his name is lifted up, then there is no hope for morality to stand in this world or even in the church. He says, be followers of God as dear children. Don't take your cues from anyone other than the true and the living God. And then he says in verse 2, he says, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling favor. Now notice that. Notice where he gets his authority to describe and define for us what love is. He doesn't look to Strong's exhaustive concordance. He doesn't talk about the classical definitions of love as you look throughout Greek language. He doesn't appeal to the philosophers of the day or the poetry or or, or any of those mediums. He appeals to the person of Christ because, again, the standard is always set by the author and not by the observer. And so he points right to Christ and he says, walk in love. Now, if you ask 10 people to define for you what is love, you're going to get 10 different definitions that are based on the interpretation of how that person perceives love or gives love, they will address love in the manner that they themselves are used to it. Now, of those ten, probably none of them will give you love as it was authored and intended by God for it to be. And if we want to know what love is, then there's nowhere else to look than to the Lord. And thus Paul says... Walk in love as Christ also has loved us. And Paul defines for us what love is. He says that love is that which is demonstrated by the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. That if you want to understand what love is in the biblical divine sense, then you have to look at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That that's where it's found. What do we find when we look at the love of Christ? What is love if we use Jesus as the standard in the definition? Well, first of all, love is unconditional. Love, according to Christ, is unconditional love. The Bible declares that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Every single one of us have turned our back on our Creator. The Bible says that there is none that doeth good, no, not one. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have not met the requirements of what God would call holy or acceptable. And every single man, woman, or child that has ever lived falls into that category of not being good enough. The Bible says that we are alienated, enemies of God by wicked works. But yet the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, that even though this was our condition, that this is true of all of us, he says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, or perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
That it wasn't based upon if we could meet the bar, if we could measure up to the standard, if we could get our lives in order enough wherein God would see our effort and somehow say, oh, but you're trying so hard. And since I appreciate your effort, therefore I will give you love. No, no, no. It says that while we were his enemies, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that it was then at our weakest point that God reached down and said, I love you so much that this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to save you from your sins. I'm going to take and pay the price for your faults myself. An unconditional love is a love that doesn't make sense. You know, there was a discussion that took place between a brother in this church and a group of brothers that were purporting that, you know, if a person trips up or backslides in their faith at a certain point that they would then fall out of God's favor and that they would lose the the state of salvation. They would no longer be accepted by the grace of God. And the brother from our church stood up for, for the Lord, for his word, and said, no, 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 that's not the grace of God. That's not what the Bible teaches. And the brother, or the guy, brother or not, I don't know, but he, he looked at the brother from our church and he said, that God is a fool. The God that would accept someone who spits upon the standards of his word and would accept someone who walks in open rebellion, that God is a fool. And you know what the answer to that is? You're right. He's a fool. Because unconditional love doesn't make sense. Why would God choose to love someone who's alienated by wicked works? Why would God choose to forgive someone who sins and trips up over and over again? Why would God... See, see, if God made sense, then God would have a long time ago just taken this little planet and he would have gotten out his, you know, wood driver and he would have set our little planet on a little cosmic golf tee and he would have said, let me show you what I think of you. And he would have set a record for the longest drive. And he would have just said, you know what, I'm just going to wipe this thing out. It's nothing more than a speck of dust in my economy, and I'm going to start over. But see, the wisdom of God's love doesn't make sense, because the wisdom of God's love is smarter than men. It's foolishness with men. It doesn't compute. It doesn't calculate, because it's unconditional. The love of Christ doesn't make sense. It wasn't intended to make sense. And we'll spend all of eternity trying to figure out the dynamics and the scope and the framework of that love. We'll never figure it out. Unconditional love, the love of Christ. It's not only unconditional, it's also sacrificial. The Bible tells us very clearly that the Son, Jesus, was with the Father before the foundations of the world. In fact, it was Jesus himself that said it in John chapter 17. He prayed and he said, Father, glorify them with the glory I had with you from before the world even was. And Jesus lived in that glory. He lived in that one with the Father in constant communion and fellowship with him. And yet for the sake of love, because he would not see us to perish, but rather he would redeem us, he stepped down from that place of glory. He sacrificed that place that he held in heaven in order to come and to dwell among us, to tabernacle among us. He put on human flesh. Now, if you think about that and you kind of try to put a relative relation upon what he did, you have God Almighty who's, who's in glory, 
there in heaven and he puts on human flesh and he comes and lives among us. That was bigger than if you and I were to become a maggot and go live in the carcass of a rotting animal. Now, if I were to ask you, would you be willing to sacrifice your position as a person to become a maggot because you love those maggots? What would you say? You would say, uh, you know, um, do, you, do you have any golf clubs? Uh, <laughs> because it, that's disgusting. But see, it, it's not, it, it's, see, it goes one step further because it's not that you're just going to become a maggot and tell the maggots how to get saved. But you're going to become a maggot and you're going to live among them, which means you're going to eat what they eat. You're going to live how they live. In the baseness of all that it is, that's what you're going to do. And Jesus, for the sake of loving us and seeking to honor the Father, was willing to put on human flesh and not just preach to us the way of salvation, but to live among us, to walk in our steps, to eat what we eat. It's a sacrificial love. And then, once he was here, living among us, everything he did was on our behalf in submission to his Father. There was no me time. John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus declared and he said, I do always only those things which please the Father. He had one thing on his mind. It was to serve us in his Father's name. John chapter 4, verse 34, he said, My meat, my food, the thing that drives me is to do the will of him that sent me. And we understand clearly as we read the Gospels what the will of him that sent him was. To live among us. To be the express image of the Father. To be the faithful witness that would declare and demonstrate to us who God is. And it was completely selfless. There was no self in it at all. It was completely on our behalf and for the Father's glory. The love of Christ is unconditional. It's sacrificial. It's also selfless. Look again in verse 2. He says, Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. That is, he gave himself for us to God or he gave himself to God for our sake. That's what Paul is saying to us there. That he gave himself. I love the, 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 the passage in John chapter 13. Where Jesus was just about to go to the cross. And I, I was going to go through it, but we don't have time. But the passage where Jesus is there with his disciples in the upper room. Just prior to going to the cross. And it's, I love the verse. In fact, write it down and read it later. Because it's such a powerful thing. It says that Jesus, knowing who he was, knowing what was about to happen to him, knowing that he was about to go to the Father, and yet it says that he loved his people even unto the end. And it's just words in one sense, but if you can understand what was taking place inside of the Son of God at that point. He's about to do something that no human being has ever undergone. The weight of suffering that he's about to endure, and he knows it. We know he knew it because he went into the garden and he sweat great drops of blood because of the stress and the strain of what was about to come upon him. And yet, with all of the weight of what was about to take place upon him and and, and through him and in him, knowing what was going to happen, it says that there he was, 
And he took the towel that he was girded with. And he took a basin of water. And one by one, he went around the room and he started to wash his disciples' feet. What would you do if you were about to endure the largest scale of physical suffering that you could ever even imagine? And you were in a room with 12 of your friends. What would you do? Oh, God, pray for me, guys. What's going on? I can't believe this is that. You know, what, but what did Jesus do? He began to wash his disciples' feet. One by one with the towel that he was girded with. He loved them unto the end. It was selfless, even to the very end. There was, no, there was no self in it. He exists to beautify his bride and to bring honor and pleasure to his Father. And this is the definition of love. That's what love is. That's what love is. Tell John Lennon. He said, all you need is love. He didn't know what love was. This is what love is. It's defined and demonstrated through the person and the work of Christ. And now, what Paul is telling us is that we are to walk in love. Which means that we're to make that the measure and the rule of how we define love and how we interact with one another. That it's to be in love. Well, what does that mean? It means that we're to love people, we're to love one another without preconditions. It's to be unconditional. It's not based upon how well they do, how they perform, what they do for us, whether or not we're in their favor. It's to be unconditional. That's the kind of love we're to have towards, towards one another. The love is to be sacrificial. That we're to give ourselves to God for the sake of other people. Lord, spend my life to be of service or a, a source of edifying or a source of blessing to somebody else. Let my life be poured out. Like Paul said, I'm poured out as a drink offering. For the sake of God's people. And it means to love selflessly. When there's no reciprocation, there's nothing in it for me, I am loving you because of the love of God that's been given to me to extend towards you. It's, it's sacrificial, it's unconditional, it's selfless. selfless. And the result of it, he says at the end of the verse there, he says that it is a sweet-smelling savor. And the reference is to, you know, the burnt offering that was given in Leviticus chapters 1 through 5. The burnt offering is described there. And what the burnt offering was, was a free will offering. God didn't require it. It wasn't something that was lawful. They didn't have to do it this many times a year. It was when you felt so inclined to extend to God a gift, a sacrifice, something that costs you something but that it wasn't required of you, it says that it was a sweet-smelling savor to God because it was offered willingly. And the Bible says that when we love this way, when unconditional love becomes our definition of love, and we live in that love, it's a sweet-smelling savor to the Father. It pleases Him. He's pleased with that kind of life. It glorifies Him. Now, whenever God creates something or designs something, or demonstrates something, Satan will always build a counterfeit. From Genesis to Revelation, whenever God builds something, Satan seeks to counterfeit. Verse 2 describes for us God's love, as it was demonstrated and defined through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But in verses 3 and 4, 
we read Satan's counterfeit love. Or what you would call the world's love. Or what John Lennon was talking about, if you would. False love. Satan's love is not selfless, but reciprocal. I love you if you love me. Or... It's self-indulgent or self-serving. It gives only what it has to in order that it might receive or get what it wants. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And the love of the world, the love that the world purports, the love that is authored by Satan, exists to exploit and indulge the sensual passions of the flesh and to glorify such behaviors by calling it love. It's counterfeit love. Notice the words that Paul uses to define this in verse 3. He says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient or fitting, but rather giving of thanks. The first word that Paul uses to define Satan's false love is this word fornication. In the Greek language, the word is pornea. And what it means is any form, now listen carefully, saints, and you can throw rocks at me later, or you can leave if you want, but any form of sexual contact outside of covenantal marriage is defined as fornication biblically. Any form of sexual contact outside of covenantal marriage is biblical fornication. It's premarital sex, it's extramarital sex, and it includes any form of sexual contact among people that are not covenantally married to each other, whether it's intercourse or not. I don't know if you know this, but this has become a real problem in the world. The absence of Christ's authority in the world has led to an anything-goes mentality concerning sex. And it affects the way sex has been taught and is being taught in our schools. It affects the way sex is portrayed in the media. I mean, it's ridiculous when you think about how free and open sex is expressed through you know, television and sitcoms and movies. If somebody was looking in a window and you were out for a walk you know, in the evening in your neighborhood and you saw someone with a pair of binoculars looking in someone's window in their bedroom, you would look at that person and you would think they're sick. You would call the police and say, there's a sicko looking in someone's window. But let me ask you, when you're watching someone do that on your screen, is it any different? It affects the way sex is viewed by doctors and psychologists. And it affects the way sex is viewed by Christians. And the church of Jesus Christ no longer has a biblical view or a Christ-centered view on sex. Sex is not something that's considered sanctified or holy. It's not spirit-controlled in the lives of people that call themselves Christians. And sex has become the one big asterisk of the Christian faith. You understand what I mean by asterisks? You know, you're reading something, and there's a claim that is made, but there's a little tiny asterisk by it. And you go to the bottom of the page, and you read what it says next to the asterisk, and it says, yeah, this doesn't really mean anything. 
And sex has become that in the Christian life. We read in the Bible that we're not to do these things, that we're to hold a standard and behave a certain way, but there's this assumed asterisk among Christian people that we say, yeah, we know what the Bible says about that, but let's get real in the 21st century. You know, let's bring the Bible up to where we're at as a society and what we've, how, look how far we've come, you know. And the attitude that Christian people have towards sex is, well, God made us this way. This is just an expression of how God made us. And, and, and God doesn't really mean what he says about fornication or premarital or extramarital or, you know, non-marital sexual contact. That's not what it means, people will say. Or you hear this one all the time these days among younger people. They say, well, you can't really get married until first you try it out. You have to try it out. You know, you wouldn't buy a car without test driving it, you know, and you wouldn't take a spouse in this, that, that same sense. Well, listen, that is the stupidest argument as a Christian that you could ever make. Because in order to say that, you are admitting your intent to have multiple partners. Because you can't try it out with the sake of trying it out unless you're going to compare it to something. So you're admitting by saying that that you intend to have multiple partners, that it's not going to be your only one. And in that, you have obliterated the whole purpose for God saying that this is my purpose for sex. One man, one woman for life. That's what it is in God's standard. That's where you will experience blessing and satisfaction in sex, in marriage. That's what God says. I love what one brother said to me. He said, you know, he was talking about this subject and he said, you know, he goes, if you only drank water your whole life and you had a Diet Coke, you would think it was the most incredible thing you've ever had. Because it's, oh, this is insane. This is so good. You, and you'd be like, can I get another Diet Coke? And that's all you would want is Diet Coke until you had real Coke. Then once you've had real Coke, now you say, this diet stuff, this is garbage, you know, and you have no use for it anymore. And isn't that true if you bring it into that same vernacular? God brings you that perfect person for you, and you experience them, and only them. It is the most incredible thing that you could ever experience. But once you become promiscuous and you begin to experience multiple partners, well, now you're comparing Coke with Diet Coke. And you know what? I guarantee you this. You will never be satisfied with the spouse that God gave you. The problem with these types of mentalities and attitudes among Christians is that it's an indication of your faith. God says that your submission in this area of sex is a reflection of your saving faith. If you don't believe what God says and obey what God says in the standard of your drives, then it's an indication of how well you believe God in the other things, even salvation. That's why if you look down with your eyes to verse 5, we'll get there and you can read it. The second word that he uses there is the word uncleanness. In verse Back in verse 3, he said, but fornication and all uncleanness. The word uncleanness in the Greek, it's a great word. It's akatharsia. And the root word is Catharizo, it's where we get the English word to catheterize. You ever have a catheter? You're in the hospital, they have to get the stuff out of you that's not supposed to be in you. It brings purity, a catheter. 
People say that they, you know, go for walks and do things because it's cathartic, it's purifying, you know, it empties the mind. Well, this is the same word, except it's got the prefix a before it. So it's impure. If catheter purifies, then a catharizo is to be impure. And that's what it means, this word unclean. It's impurity. And it speaks of the impurity of lustful living. Now, this word is used ten times in the New Testament. The first one was Jesus himself when he was talking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The other nine all have to do with sexual immorality. So the context of this word when he's talking about impurity is very clear. It's a sexual impurity. It isn't just, you know, that your hands are dirty or something. And it means to have your heart and your mind defiled with sexually impure things. And under this banner falls the area of pornography, which gives a twisted and deceptive concept of sex. Fantasy, novels, and fictitious sexual media that defiles the mind and twists and warps your views. And anything that inputs improper sexual information into your mind. He is telling us that it is toxic and that it is detrimental to the well-being of your soul. It brings impurity. You wouldn't drink water that's been defiled by some bacteria or some virus or some filth. You wouldn't drink that water because you'd say it's impure. And Paul is saying here that these types of things, they bring impurity to your soul. They defile and compromise the value of your soul. The third word that he uses there is the word covetousness. And it's frequent, it's common that you see these two words together in the New Testament. You'll see uncleanness with covetousness or uncleanness with greediness. Back in chapter 4, verse 19, the word greediness there where he talks about uncleanness and he says with greediness. It's the same exact word in the Greek. And those two things always go together. Why? Because covetous means to stretch the appetite. That's what the, It's an interesting word. It means the stretching of the appetite. And you know what that's like. You, right before you go to bed, you, you ever, are you normal like me? Right before you go to bed, you're like, you know what? I'll just sit down and have a sandwich. And you have four. And then you go to bed and you're like, oh, you know, and you feel terrible and you don't sleep that good. But what happens when you wake up in the morning? You're hungry. You're real hungry. Why? Because you've stretched the appetite. See? And that's what this covetous, that's what it means. And the idea behind it is that someone who is given to this type of a life will never be satisfied. Because the more of it you get is only going to result in the more of it that you're going to desire. It's never going to satisfy. It's never going to be enough. And it creates this greed for more, for a, a, a stranger or more twisted or a, a, a more you know, radical expression or indulgence of it. I wish I had time to talk about the soul. See, the soul has limitless needs. Or I'm sorry, it has a limitless capacity. And so it needs a limitless source. Your stomach can only handle so much and it's full, see? But your soul can expand forever. And God made it that way because He designed that there would be something that would be an eternal source Himself. And the only thing that can satisfy something that has a limitless capacity is someone who has a limitless ability to give. 
But when you seek to satisfy your soul with something like sexual indulgence or sexual expression, you are stretching your soul in a way that it can never be satisfied and you'll destroy it. Now, God created sex. Did you know that? Sex is holy. God created it. He also created a safe place for it called marriage. See, if you have a fireplace in your house, then you have a place to build a fire, correct? And if you build a fire in the fireplace, man, it's inviting, it's awesome. You know, it's, it's, you just want to be around it. it. It's attractive. Everything about it is good. You know, you have this fireplace, you have this fire in it because you've put the fire in the place that's designed for the fire and everything is good and right. But if you take the fire out of the fireplace and put it on the kitchen floor, then you have a disaster. See? And God has created this incredible fire, this awesome warming experience, this bonding experience. But he's also created a place for it. It's called marriage. But if you take this bonding experience and you take this fire out of the place of marriage and put it somewhere else, it creates a disaster. That's what it does. Now, what does the Bible say about sex and marriage? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. It says that marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. And what that means is that if you are married then you have God's blessing upon your sex life. Your marriage bed is undefiled. It was created for you to enjoy it and to experience it with your spouse and to be blessed. It's made by God. But outside of marriage, the same thing that's blessed by God is judged by God. Whoremongers, which is again the word fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. I have a rabbit trail here. I'm really tempted to go down it because it's useful, you know. All right, I will. <laughs> Quickly. The cleaving of a man and his wife is essential. It's essential for a healthy marriage that a man and a woman be experiencing the expression of sexual relationship. It's, it's, it's healthy. It's the way God made it. A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. But God has given that a very interesting dynamic because the man has to love and serve and know his wife in order to get her to respond. Now, man, you're not normal if that's true. I mean, you're not abnormal if that's true in your marriage, that you have to work more or less to try to get your wife to respond. God made men and women that way. We have a much more powerful drive than women do in that respect. And God did that on purpose. Because just as Christ is the initiator of loving his bride, the church, we're to be the initiator in relationship with our wives. And so we're to know them. We're to love them like Christ loved the church. And the response that will happen within them as we do is that they will respond to us. See? And God made it to happen that way. And it brings health and growth in a marriage and a bond in the relationship. There is love and there is relations. And the two things just bring an explosion of blessing within a marriage. But, if a man, because he doesn't want to put forth the effort, or for maybe other reasons, makes it accustomed to satisfy himself sexually, then 
No longer does he need the wife, and therefore there isn't an effort placed in that arena of marriage, and the marriage dissolves. It weakens the marriage. And so God has made it this way. Now, on the converse, if the woman withholds herself, then she sins against her husband. And that sex and love are never to be used as tools of leverage to try to get someone to be who you want them to be or do what you want them to be, to do. But God has created them to be enjoyed and to be a blessing within your marriage. Now, verse 4. He uses three words here. Filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting. And he says that they are not fitting. And what it means is to turn something that is said, no matter how innocent it is, into something that is obscene or suggestive. You've been around people like that, right? You're having a conversation. You're talking about a hike that you took or something or whatever. And all of a sudden someone says, that's what she said. You know, and, and, and people, they, they do this. They make things suggestive. Everything has a, an, a, an entendre, a double meaning. It's somehow twisted and turned into darkness. And Paul is telling us here, he's saying that that is not the way that we're to be as Christians. That that's not our style. It's not the way that we do. Well, he moves on from there, from the definition of counterfeit love to now the destruction that comes from counterfeit love. Look with me at verse 5. He says, for this you know, that no whoremonger, and that's the word fornicator again, same root word in the Greek, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He says, you know. He doesn't say, I am telling you. He doesn't say, I am appealing to what you read somewhere else, he's saying that you already know that this is true. That internally there is something inside of you, a check engine light that goes off if you are living this way. I'm not talking about someone who is struggling and fighting and resisting and that fails, but someone who is embracing and giving themselves to this lifestyle and putting an asterisk by it and saying that it's okay with God. He says, you know this already, that what you're doing, the way you're living is wrong. You're dishonoring God, he says. And then he uses the word whoremonger or fornicator. And this word also is used ten times in the New Testament. And I will just say this. Seven out of those ten times that this word is used in the New Testament, it is in the, the, the specific context that the person who is doing it is not saved. Seven out of ten times that this word is used, it says that if you are living this type of life, you are not saved. It is an indicator that you do not have faith in the Lord if you cannot bring your sexual life into submission to Him. Because part of the work of God's Holy Spirit in working in someone's life is to bring them under self-control. And I have three verses that I don't have time to read, but you can write them down. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, where it talks about Esau. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, where it talks about fornicators being outside. And Revelation chapter 22, verses 14 and 15, where it says the same thing in another way. But Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32 says this, But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh discretion, and he that doeth it destroys his own soul. 
He moves from the destruction to the deception in verse 6. He says, Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Don't be deceived, the Apostle Paul says. And I'm so glad that he put this here because isn't there such a deception in this arena? Because of the prevalence of sexual things in our society. Hey, by the way, it was true in Paul's day in Ephesus. Ephesus was the epicenter of sexual expression in his world in his day. The temple to Diana, the sex goddess, who was a multi-breasted image, that was Ephesus. That was where that was. That's where Paul was. And it's true in our day. Everything is sexual. Everything is explicitly sexual. And because of the prevalence of it, and also because of the power of it, even in us, the drive that God has given to us, it's very easy to be deceived. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things, and who could know it? Our hearts deceive us. Did you know that your heart will deceive you? Now, that happens by itself. Our hearts deceive us without us even caring about or or wanting them to or paying attention. Our hearts deceive us. How much more when we want our hearts to deceive us? When we're being bombarded with suggestions and that is coupling with the drive that we naturally have. It's a recipe for deception for us to excuse it or put an asterisk by it or in some way to indulge in it and think that God is just going to wink at it or ignore it. People will say, well, it's no big deal, you know. Little Johnny, you know, off to college, he's just sowing his wild oats, you know. It's really not that big of a deal. He'll get past that stage, you know. Or people will say, well, we're spiritually married. We haven't done it. We haven't actually walked down the aisle yet. But in God's eyes, he sees the love that we have towards each other. And so we're spiritually married. Besides, it's just a piece of paper, they'll say. So we didn't get the piece of paper yet. What, what big deal is that? We're going to get it, you know? So God, in God's eyes, it's already done. Hey, he calls those things that aren't as though they are, right? Listen, if marriage is nothing more than a piece of paper before you walk down the aisle, then marriage will be nothing more than a piece of paper after you walk down the aisle. And if that's your mentality and your view of marriage, you have problems. It's covenantal, it's unconditional, and true love waits. Jacob waited seven years for Rachel, and it says that they seemed like a couple of days to him because of the love that he had towards her. He was willing to wait because he wanted to honor God. He believed God. And he says, don't be deceived. God does not wink at nor accept this type of behavior. It is not okay with God. So how do we defeat this? Because in this society, and in this church age that we are in, where the church has been so inundated and affected, and believe me, the church has been affected by this cultural issue that I'm talking about. How do we defeat it? If you're struggling here, if there's an issue in you where this is your thing, your battle, how, how, how do we beat this? How do we get past it? Paul gives a solution here. First of all, the first solution is get the real thing. If you're being deceived by the counterfeit love, the first solution is to get the real love. 
Because isn't it amazing how when you have a counterfeit and then you get the real thing, how all of a sudden the counterfeit is exposed for what it is? Back in verse 2, we're told that the key or the, you know, the key to experiencing God's love is that we offer our lives completely to Him. We learned a couple of studies ago, back at the beginning of, or somewhere in the middle of chapter 4, that the very aim, the very purpose of life as God intended it for us, is that we would live to bring Him pleasure. That when we live in our aim, our purpose in life is to bring pleasure to God, that that's when we're going to begin to experience life. Until then, life is empty. And so what we're to do is we're to get our lives in line with the very aim of life itself, which is to glorify and bring honor to God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and you should write it down. Or you'll see it up on the screen, but think it through. 1 John 1, 9, it says that if we confess our sins, the word confess in the Greek, it's homologeo, and what it means is to say the same thing. Confess means say the same thing. In other words, if God is saying this is sin, then what we're doing is we're agreeing with God. We're not justifying it, saying, no, it's not. It's not really sin. It's kind of maybe, you know, in some form. But no, 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 no. Confession means that I'm agreeing. I'm saying, yes, Lord, you're right. Your word says this. My life shows this, and I am guilty when I stand before you. So he says, if we confess our sins then He is faithful and just to forgive us. He'll take the sin away. He'll extend grace and mercy to us. He'll wash us in the very blood of His Son that hung upon a cross and was bled out for this very thing. He'll forgive us, but He doesn't just forgive us. Notice, He says He's faithful to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us. Do you know what the word is in the Greek? Catharize. Remember the catheter? He purifies us. It isn't just that He forgives us and wipes our slate clean of the guilt, but that when we confess our sins to Him, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. He begins to purify us. He begins to take the filth, the moral filth, the false concepts, the, 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 you know, the twisted imagery, the twisted concepts. He starts to drain all of that out as we give our lives and surrender to Him. First John chapter 2, just a few verses down, verses 4 and 5, it says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But, whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Isn't that interesting? He says if we say that we know God, but yet we disregard His commands, that that means we're lying, that we really don't know Him. But, he says if we keep His word, then what does that mean? It means that the love of God has been perfected in us. That means that the solution to a counterfeit love dominating your life is to be perfected in the real love. It's not the fear of God that brings purity and perfection within us. It's the love of God. And as we experience and drink in the truth of His love and let it permeate through our lives, that's what brings us into compliance with His commands because we're in submission, because we know Him, because we love Him, because we're satisfied. 
It has been said before that it takes a passion to beat a passion. And there's truth in that, you know. If you've ever been passionate about something, you know, you can't stop thinking about it until there's a greater passion. And when you become passionate about the things of God, when the love of God becomes your life, all other passions dissolve. They dissipate. And the more of His love you experience, the more you want to please Him. So the first thing is get the real thing. The second thing He tells us in verse 7, and this is very practical. The first one is very spiritual. This is very practical if this is your struggle. In verse 7 He says, I've got to turn back there. It's not in First John. He says, Be not ye therefore partakers with them. In other words, separate from that lifestyle. Separate from that lifestyle. The word partake means to partake together with one, a joint partaker. And what he is saying is that rather than partaking of that lifestyle and that mentality, separate from it. Separate from that influence. Whatever it is that ignites sexual passions within you, Paul is saying, get rid of it. The Bible often likens sexual expression or experience unto a fire. It's not uncommon. In fact, it's very consistent throughout Scripture that sex is likened unto a fire in the Bible. Now, the interesting thing about a fire, the factual thing about a fire, is that once the fire is ignited, the fire is going to consume everything that's in the fire pit. It's just the way fire works. It's only a matter of time before everything in it is consumed. Now picture with me in the heart of every human, every single one of us, there's a fire pit. There's this carefully built, carefully crafted fire pit that's been made inside of us. This area of our lives where we experience, you know, sexual experience, you know, in the context of whatever it is. And there it is. You have it. It's your heart. And you're a person who struggles, that's been inundated, that's passionate about maybe illicit or immoral type of sexual things. Well, what you have there is around the outside of that fire. It's not lit yet, mind you, but around the outside of it, you have the kindling of careless thoughts and careless eyes. It's far away from the middle where the, you know, where the, the heart of everything is. But way out here on the outskirts of this fire pit is just the kindling of careless eyes and careless thoughts, you know. But just beyond that, as you move towards the center of this fire pit, you have the logs of lust. And the logs of lust are there. They're carefully stacked just inside, still very far from the middle, not, not in any way of, of harm to that carefully guarded thing that's right there in the middle. But as you move just a little bit closer towards the middle, you have the fodder of flirtation. And the fodder of flirtation is there. It's still not there in the middle. It still isn't going to consume the thing that's precious. Just inside of that, in the very center of this fire, you have the inferno of infidelity. The thing that will never catch fire, it must never be allowed to catch fire, this inferno of infidelity. And so you, so you have this fire within you, and then here's what happens. Here's what happens. Is that, you know, all of a sudden, you have this little, little bit of kindling around the outside, the kindling of careless thoughts, Careless eyes, wandering thoughts. 
And because, you know, it's okay to look, it's okay to think about things, there's no sin, it's just looking. I mean, it's art, God made it. It's okay to just look at that person or look at that figure or look at that picture. It's just, it's nothing. But what happens is that the kindling of carelessness ignites. And you say, well, it's no big deal. It's no problem. It's, yeah, I like to look. Yeah, I like to think. Yeah, I like to read books or whatever. But it's no big deal. It's just, it's way far away. It will never turn into adultery or an affair or or immorality or fornication. It's not going to happen like that. This is just, this is just way out here. But listen, as long as the kindling of carelessness is burning, the logs of lust are warming up. And the problem with fire is that once those logs reach 400 degrees, guess what happens? They ignite. The kindling of carelessness. You became more liberal with what you watched on TV. Who you would look at. What you would read and think about. But you said it will never go beyond that. It's just looking. Just for fun. But the logs of lust ignite. And as much as you want to suppress it. The desire is there. The desire is alive. And the fire begins to burn. And pretty soon the fodder of flirtation catches fire and oh it's just a conversation you know it's just it's just a cup of coffee it's just a text message it's just a facebook connection it's it's no big deal it's just it's the fodder of flirtation there's nothing wrong with it i mean this is this is just interaction this is real life you know but the fodder of flirtation it burns it's out of control And if it's not checked, it becomes the inferno of infidelity. And that's true whether it's with a person physically or whether it's looking at a computer screen or a TV set. You're defiled. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 says, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? It's a great verse. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? It's way deep inside where no one else can see it. Nobody knows that your, your eyes have become liberal. Nobody knows that you're looking or that, that you, 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 know, you, you have no check, no conscience about that anymore. That's just the way it is. There's a fire that's been ignited in your heart. And guess what? It's only a matter of time before that fire consumes from way deep inside where no one else can see it to where it's on the outside. And everybody knows. Wow. See, when someone falls into sexual sin, it's not something that happened overnight. They didn't just wake up one day and go, Oh, I fell into sexual sin. No, it started a long time ago. Carelessness with the eyes, with the mind, with the ears, with the heart. And that fire was not checked. It was not put out. It was not extinguished. It was allowed to burn because it's fun or because there's pleasure in it, or because society says it's okay, or because these things are constantly hitting me. And that fire burns. But if you leave it, you won't be able to stop it. You know, they had a show on Dateline put on this thing. I don't know if they still do it, but they used to put on to catch a predator. And they would bait these grown men, and they would chat with them online, and they would pose to be 13, 14-year-old girls. And they would get in chat room conversations with grown men, 40 years old, 50 years old. And then they would set up a meeting time when they would come and their purpose for meeting was illicit, immoral. And then the person would get there and there would be whoever the Dateline reporter was waiting for them in the kitchen. 
And then, of course, you know, the cameras would be there, and it's like, hey, do you know who I am? Hey, did you write these things? And there would be an explosion. And, you know, it's amazing. Some of the people that, that they caught, a doctor, a medical doctor, established, wealthy, influential, popular, a rabbi. Why? Because, you see, if you don't check that fire, if you don't do something to stop it from consuming, eventually you are going to get burned. So what do we do? He says, be not partakers with them. You separate yourself from the influence that will destroy your soul. The only way to stop a fire is to douse it with water and disperse the logs, right? If you just put water on a fire, you'll come back the next day and that water will burn off and that fire will reignite. It will slowly consume through those logs. You can slow it down, but unless you disperse the logs, that thing's going to keep burning. It's the only way. So what does that mean? How does that flesh out in the life of a Christian? For some of us, it means that we need to cancel cable. For some of us, it means that we need to get rid of the internet or our smartphone or our Facebook account. For some of us, it might mean that we need to ask for a transfer. Because at risk is, first of all, your marriage. Second of all is your children. Look at their faces at night. See them there laying there in innocence and think about what's going to happen to them. And third is your future. The Bible says that he has a future and a hope for us, plans and expectation and blessing that he's designed. Our sense of well-being and most of all, our fellowship with God. The very aim of life itself, the very reason why we've been existed. And we risk grieving his Holy Spirit and quenching the work that he's doing within our life. And it's at risk. And listen, I'm telling you, church, it is not worth it. Because it cannot satisfy. We're drawing to a close, but I know for a fact that there are people, there are people, but there are people even here in this room right now, that you would say that I don't want to go to heaven if it means that I have to yield my sex drive to God's authority. If I have to view and experience sex the way God mandates it in His Word, then I would rather stay outside of God's authority, God's kingdom. Why would God make such a powerful drive if He didn't ex- intend for us to explore and to use it? It doesn't, it doesn't compute. No thanks. I'm going to stay outside of that. Listen, church, listen to me. And I, and I know maybe there's some people here, and why is He saying this? Listen, if you heard what I hear, and if you saw what I see, you would understand. And my sense is that you do. Every one of you does. Listen. A couple of years ago, I ignored the warning, a medical label, and I used a cold relief product. The warning was that if you use this, you may lose your sense of smell. And I said, yeah. So I blew through that road barrier and I used the product. And sure enough, for two days, I lost my sense of smell. That was a terrible experience. I mean, to discover, my, you know, and the way it happened is that I was grabbing my gym bag and there was a pair of socks in there. And they looked dirty, but I wasn't sure. So I reached and I pulled them out and went, and I was like, I don't smell anything. 
they would smell a little bad even if they were clean. You know, there's something wrong with this. You know, so, so then I was like, that's really weird. And so I asked my wife, I said, do you smell? And she's like, I ain't smelling that. You know, <laughs> so I reach in the fridge and I grab an onion and I go, and there was nothing. So I reached by the washing machine, which was at that time right behind the refrigerator, and I opened it up and I stuck my nose into a bottle of ammonia. And I went, and then I got really dizzy, but I didn't smell anything. And then I panicked. I, I literally panicked. I started shaking. I, lo- I, I, don't, I can't smell. I can't smell. I can't smell. I've lost my sense of smell. What do I do? It's Sunday. I can't call a doctor. Do I go to the emergency room? Can they? And and I'm literally like, I started to cry because I thought to myself, you know, I'm never, I'm never again going to smell fresh cut grass on a spring day. I'm never again going to smell that smell when the rain hits the pavement in the middle of summer. I'm never going to smell Thanksgiving dinner again when, you know, on that day when everybody's together and the whole house is filled with that aroma. Fresh ground coffee. I'm never going to smell these things. And I was overcome by the sense of loss because of this ignorance to just listen to the warning on the label. I was so angry with myself. Now, I praise God that my sense of smell came back and that I can smell. You know, whether or not he just healed me or who knows. I don't know. But that's not the point. Here's the point. If I had never had a sense of smell... I wouldn't care if I lost it, right? If I had never smelled fresh ground coffee or any of these things, then who cares if you can't smell it anymore? But the fact that I had made me understand the sense of my loss, what I had lost. What's your point? Here's my point. The Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. That means that there are senses and experiences awaiting us in the world to come that cannot be compared to any sensation or any experience that we can experience in the here and now. The senses that will be open to us that we haven't even begun to imagine are outside of our realm of understanding. And that doesn't really bother us now because we've never experienced them. But for a man or a woman to say, I am not going to give my life to Jesus Christ because of what it might do to my sex drive or my sex expression is pure foolishness because you are trading something that can temporarily please you but can never satisfy you for the loss of experience everything that God has prepared for you in the ages to come and for all of eternity and that is foolishness that's why back in ephesians in verse 15 there if you just skip with your eyes to verse 15 in chapter 5 he says see then that you walk circumspectly not as fools but as wise redeeming the time because the days are evil wherefore be ye not unwise but understanding what the word of the lord is he is saying get things in perspective be wise the word for some of you tonight as we close and the musicians can come the Lord would say to you put the fire out there's no asterisks there's no excuse There's no justification. There's no way around the 
end of that life or of that path. And you need to put the fire out now. The good news is that he has supplied for us the power to do it. He's given us the wealth of his Holy Spirit, and he will give us the ability to do what we cannot. Listen, there is a God who made you, who authored life and everything that's in it. He purchased eternal salvation. He's coming again, and every one of us will stand before him. And his word, the word of Almighty God, is fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. Let it not be once named among you as is fitting for saints. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would understand the severity of the days that we live in and the severity of the consequences of disobedience in this arena. I pray that you would help us to understand the things that we've heard tonight. That you'd help us to apply them to our lives. I pray even for those tonight that maybe aren't struggling with this, but they're struggling with something else, with drugs or with some other form of something that will destroy them. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to do what you're asking us to do. And that we would walk in wisdom. We pray that you would insulate us from bringing shame upon your name. And we ask that you would fill us with your holy love, your pure love, that we might walk in your wisdom. We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.